1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Please stop bothering my kid. Sorry. Arthur, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they can do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. Isn't it? For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. You think this is funny? <laughs> is this a joke to you? <laughs> Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? Everybody, 
and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I once again have the pleasure of having my friend, Mr. Trentus Magnus, join us for an episode. Uh, welcome aboard again. Hey, hey, I'm uh, happy to be here, and I really appreciate the invitation, especially for today's subject matter. This is going to be very exciting, I think. Well, this, this one kind of came about impromptu because I saw this movie last week, and... As I often do, I posted in the on the Is It Yours Facebook page that I was watching it, and I was asked if uh, I planned on doing an episode on it, and I hadn't. I was just watching it for the sake of watching it, and uh, I threw out the invitation that if you wanted to do it, let's go ahead and do it. And as you know, if you've seen the artwork for this episode, we are covering the 2019 movie Joker, and I have a tough time with not saying the Joker. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm not sure exactly if there was something intentional about the way they, you know, the way they uh, chose that, because in my lifetime, he's always been called the joke. So. I see that as a little bit of a marketing thing, if you want. I mean, I, I can sit on that for a while until we come to it in the uh, discussion. But uh, sure. I, I see sort of a, a marketing thing going on behind that that uh, I'll be happy to speak to when the time comes. Okay. That's that's good. So we'll put a pin in that and get back to it. Um, how did you come about seeing this? Did you see it in the theater? Do you see it on a recent home video release? <clears throat> um, all of the above, actually. Uh, what happened was, <clears throat> uh, without getting into, I guess, the minutia of my personal life, uh, I got married uh, recently, and for our honeymoon, you know, it, it was actually separated from our from our actual wedding day by a a factor of several months. And so my wife and I, uh, my new wife at the time, uh, my new wife and I, we found ourselves on a cruise uh, ship and we were just tooling around in the Gulf of Mexico. And the cruise ship, uh, the first off, the movie had just come out at the time. You know, maybe the day before that we started the cruise, that's when the movie came out. And so, well, the ship has an IMAX theater on it and so i i said you have to understand something paul it was a joke okay what i said to my wife was uh, hey wouldn't it be wouldn't it be kind of cool if we saw joker on our honeymoon because it, it had this reputation even at the time you know and so i i made this from the stand i made this jokey comment from the standpoint of there is there are very few movies that are least romantic uh and, and or rather less romantic and and less perhaps appropriate for watching on your honeymoon than this and she took that very seriously and so we ended up seeing it on on the ship and i of course i've been a cheerleader for this movie for a pretty long time and uh abs without giving too much away it, it would be safe to say that i absolutely enjoyed the movie and uh i had a great time watching it uh on the uh, on the ship as we were you know taking our cruise and everything well, let me ask you from this point of view, because apparently you were anxious to see it based on yes. that script. What was your anticipation? Like, what were you in? What were you expecting? Uh, well, this is a controversial opinion uh, among some people in our in our fraternity in our Casa Nostra. You know, the uh, fact is, um, and if you want to if you want to edit this out, I completely understand. But the basically, I've been disenfran uh, disenchanted, I guess, with the MCU for a pretty long time now. I think at this point we're looking at eight years where I really can take or leave uh, goings on with uh, Marvel on film. And so, well, what does that leave me with? Well, there's the DCEU and then of course justice league happened and I was extremely disappointed in that movie. And so, okay, well now the list of things that I'm looking forward to, it's starting to get kind of thin. 
And so, but there were, hey, there's still the X-Men movies, right? And I'm, I was enjoying those. And then, of course, that came to an end. And so this, this Joker film, this was literally the only thing that was on the horizon in terms of comic book cinema that seemed at all in, similar to what I was looking for. And so it benefited from comparison, you know, if nothing else. But then there was the fact that this is a very different kind of comic book movie. I think whether you love the movie or whether you hate it, I think the minimum we can all agree on is that this is very different from the conventional comic book fare that we've all kind of come to expect from Hollywood in, in the last several years. You know, so that and I think that had a big there's no way to say that without sounding kind of like a pretentious jerk. But nevertheless, I think that was a big part of it, at least for me. No, I, I think we, we can talk about that, uh, <clears throat> that aspect of it in a moment, because I think that is worth getting into because I think it goes to uh, almost the genre of the movie because I don't think it is your typical comic book movie by any stretch of the imagination but I'm just going to touch a little bit on some of the things you mentioned because I I am still enamored verse and that doesn't you know I'm, I'm not editing out that you commented that way as long as you're comfortable with it because oh, uh, I respect other opinions I, I always make a point of that on the show so saying that I don't have any problem with anybody disagreeing with me as long as there's an intelligent reason to disagree you know as long as it's not just some you know I saw the, I saw the picture and I don't like it so therefore uh, I'm not gonna go see the movies it sucks well you don't yeah. know if it sucks because you didn't see it you know that <laughs> kind of thing right. Um but if you, but if you've seen it and you didn't like it, I, I have no problem with that. Uh, different people different people have different opinions. Different what mileage may vary, and I really don't mind. As far as the DC off the Marvel stuff, that. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, as far as the DC stuff, I think I've had opinions that have agreed with the mass mentality, and I've had opinions that has have disagreed with it. I. I don't want to say very much because it's not like I consider it one of the top, top movies of all time, but I particularly enjoyed Man of Steel. And that is not a popular opinion in, in our crowd. Uh, yeah. when, I, when I've said that to people, I, I get a look like I'm insane. Uh, I enjoyed to some extent, but I do understand the criticism and don't even disagree with it. It's just the extent to which it bothers me. Uh, I, I've enjoyed Star Trek Into Darkness, even, which totally goes against the grain of, of our crowd. Everybody hates that movie. Uh, I hate the fact that they redid the con story. But other than that, I thought there were a lot of good elements in that movie that were worth watching. Uh, it's only when he finally announces, I am Khan, my name is Khan, that I lose some focus on that movie. And especially Absolutely. when they recreate scenes, you know, my favorite Star Trek movie. All that said, uh, I don't have, you know, I don't have any issue with the fact that you and I may or may not agree on certain things. I know you were a bigger fan of Batman v Superman. I really didn't care for that movie. I thought it was not as well thought out as it should have been. I don't think it was for the characters. I know you and I've listened to your show on it where you've talked about it at length and, and found some, you know, some deep meaning in it. And I'm totally comfortable with the fact that we disagree on that. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm never, never going to sit here and tell you you're wrong. I'm just going to say your opinion is different. Fair enough. All right. No, and that's, and, and that's great. It's just, uh, for those of you who don't listen to my show and may not be familiar with, uh, some of the stuff that I've said over the years, I'm pretty, I, I I'll go out on a limb and suggest I'm pretty well established among like the royal elite of Zack Snyder apologists to be found anywhere on the internet. I loved those movies, and uh, that was sort of the the standpoint that I was coming from uh, there for a lot of years. And so, uh, I guess to sort of tie it all back in with the subject at hand, I don't think there's a there's any alternate universe out there where Zack Snyder would have ever directed a film like this. But a film like this is definitely in line with what my sensibilities with comic book films are these days. 
and it was um it, it was just a, a case of the more that you see of this movie in the way of interviews with the cast and crew or teaser trailers that are coming out or just whatever it's like just when you think things can't get can't possibly get any better something new comes out and no it is better so that that was sort of where i was coming from there was a lot of interest to see what was coming and i i think to some extent well I, I agree with you that this this is not a Zack Snyder film by any stretch of the imagination. And my biggest criticism of Zack Snyder films isn't necessarily the subject matter or the tone. It's more to me that the actings the actors feel soulless. Like I don't feel a kinship to the actors, I, I, and, and it, it really does make the viewing process. Uh, but I, I want to remove myself from Zack Snyder and say that this movie may have stood a little on the shoulders of Snyder because Zack Snyder, unlike the and the Marvel movies, I don't think are geared to children per se, but I think they're geared for an all audience, you know, or at least all audience over the age of eight or nine, uh, right, right, you know, type. Uh, audience, uh, and that's a terrible way to say that, but we'll just keep moving up from that thought. Whereas I think the Zack Snyder films are, whether or not they succeed in, to the, in their goal, they are intended to present themselves to a more mature audience, probably 14, 15 and up. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there, there is a distinction there. And as the movies have gotten more sophisticated, we've seen some things that went on with that. I think we have seen some things in the X-Men movies to that effect. We've certainly seen it with Deadpool, that it was meant for an older audience, even if it's sophomoric in its humor. Yes. Uh, and I think this movie was trying to build on that to some extent. So, see, we do bring it all back to the Joker. Or to Joker. See, I always yes. the <laughs> Yeah, you gotta be uh, careful. <laughs> but but I think this movie was attempting to uh, you know present a, a definitely more mature version of this character than we've ever seen on screen before, and and a more sophisticated look into the psyche of the character. But that said, it does create a problem, I think, in marketing purposes. Uh, in that a lot of people want to, and I have to kind of list myself among that, that I find him to be a more compelling character when he's just a force of nature at being able to understand and or sympathize with him in any way. And I, I hear that, uh, that, that viewpoint a lot. I think it's, it's very valid. It's very lucid. It's, uh, I, I would be the last person to say that such, uh, such an opinion is wrong, but, uh, my answer to that oddly enough, would be that there, and, and this is not to sound uh, snooty or triumphalist or anything like that. This is just, if anything, it's me just trying to be a little bit pragmatic. There is at least one Batman movie where the Joker has a very ambiguous uh, uh, beginning. He goes on to a very ambiguous fate. For the runtime of this movie, he's simply, uh, well, he, he himself says that he's an agent of chaos in The Dark Knight. And that movie exists. It made not much more, but it still grossed more at the box office, I think, than Joker did. And that movie exists. It's extremely well regarded. Rightly so, I would say. And this is basically an alternative view of the character, number one. But number two, I do see, and this is, I guess, where I'm going to pay off the title of this movie a little bit, in, in not calling itself the joker i think somebody some marketing wonk somewhere this is them wanting to have their cake and eat it too where they can trade on the name of the joker but there are certain the title of the film and then certain things that happen in the film 
if you want this to not be the actual Joker from the established Batman mythos, I think you have two or three different escape clauses from that. I so, agree. I agree. Go ahead. Keep uh, going. <laughs> and uh, so I guess just to kind of, you know, tie it all up, um, you know, I like I say, I understand where you're coming from with that. And I would be the last person to say that you're wrong. But it's I, I, I tend to view continuity as a very subjective thing. And especially in the in, in this age that we live in of never ending reboots and restarts, new new number ones and all that fun stuff. If you want this film to be the Joker in his own sort of unique way, uh, a format of the Joker that plays to his strengths as a character rather than Batman's, and that's kind of the way that I view the film, then I think you've got a leg to stand on. If somebody would rather think, well, this is this character is called Joker, but this isn't really the same guy that you're probably thinking of when I say Joker. Well, you've got something to work with there as well. And so... Um, it, it, this is one of the few times when a movie can sort of have it both ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And in my head canon, that's how I justified this. Uh, you know, you, you referenced uh, the Dark Knight version of the Joker. And mm-hmm. in that movie, he presents, I think, three different origins for his background. Yes. Uh, each of which he presents as being the truth and each of which conflicts with the others. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I've gone back and forth on that where I ask myself, is he making this shit up and just trying to play with the heads of the people he's dealing with? Or in his mind, when he gives each of these histories, does he believe them to be true? And I'm not sure which one it is, but I kind of like leaving that second aspect out there as a possibility to just say that this guy's mind is so jumbled and so freakish that he can't even settle on what his history is, uh, You know that his own memories are so chaotic. That he, he, you know, that he comes up with new, new versions of his own life. Uh, and I kind of, I kind of adopted that to this movie to say, this is one version, but we don't even know what's real. Cause there are parts in this that are, you know, clearly just in his mind and not reality. Right. So I'm taking that to this movie and I'm saying this, this could just be a figment of his own imagination. And it's the Joker that I know and love, or not love, but <laughs> know and enjoy. Right. Uh, but, in his mind, he he could be anything because his mind is is his mind is an agent of chaos. Right, and uh, I, I've even seen that. And uh, you know, here again, the movie I think was intentionally crafted in such a way as to allow the possibility that all of this is just imaginary nonsense that's happening inside of just some random Joe's broken imagination. And uh, that's not a, an interpretation of the film that I especially care for because of the fact that it kind of robs it of any sort of dramatic impact. Again, it's not my business to tell someone else that they're wrong, mm-hmm. but that particular interpretation just doesn't really work for me, you know, really for, uh, for those reasons. But sometimes in life, you, you're able to instantly identify <clears throat> the moment that, okay, now I'm on board with this movie. I think I understand what this movie is up to, and I just can't wait to see where, where things go and how things play out. Um, it was literally the first shot of this movie. You've got Arthur Fleck, the titular Joker, uh, for purposes of this film at least, and he's sitting at a makeup table. He's putting his clown makeup on, and he's attempting to force himself to smile, and he can't even fake it. And 
that it's carried out with no real dialogue to speak of. It's just, it's basically just music or not even music. It's just really background noise. It's really just visuals. And there's even a moment when his inability to smile actually forces him to shed a tear. And it's just this phenomenal piece of acting. And so if the title cards for this movie with all the different studio logos and all that fun stuff, if that wasn't enough to get me on board with the film, and it was, then that one little bit of business at the very beginning where he tries and fails to force himself into smiling, that was that would have been the topper for me. That It's like, okay, now I can absolutely see where things are going to go. In a weird, like in, in in a weird kind of way, I would actually compare that to the overture that you hear in a symphony. It's sort of a preview of everything that you're going to hear, or most of what you're going to hear in in the symphony, distilled down to this one sort of bare essence. And I kind of compare the first maybe minute or so of this film to the overture of a symphony. That the entire rest of the movie is all about paying off and elaborating upon what we see just in that first 30 seconds or 60 seconds or however long that little, that little moment lasts. <clears throat> okay. And like we said, like we both said, you know, you don't ever want to argue with anybody else's way of, and how they take out of it. So I, I you know, I have no problem with, with that. Uh, I think I am a slave to content. That's one of the reasons I have to my mind. It's one of the reasons <laughs> why I don't really care for new comics because they keep rewriting continuity and, disregarding prior kind i'm okay with elseworld stories and with what if story but i'm really not okay with uh what you've read for 35 years was canon and now we're going to reboot it and start it from scratch again whoops we're going to do that again oh we're going to do it again oh we're going to do it again you know i i it bothers me a little i even uh i even kind of go with that same thought uh, for the history of the Joker, for the Batman 89 movie, uh, that, you know, he didn't really kill Bruce Wayne's parents. Because uh, <laughs> I think that's just stupid. You know, I, I think that's, you know, we've t- I've talked on different shows about sometimes you make the like that, when everybody coincidentally, everybody uh, got into these situations. And, uh, and I don't like that, and it's it bothers. So I, I've kind of just off that aura just as quickly. And I don't write it off to the extent that I'm not paying attention to it and engaged by it. I, I was very engaged by this. I just don't take it as this is the... I do take it as this is the character of the Joker. I don't take it as this is his definitive. And, yeah, and I'm I, I'm actually very friendly to that myself. Um, I enjoyed the movie so much that I... I'm willing to give this movie its place in the the multitude or the multiverse, I suppose, of the Joker's canon. Um, I, I don't think I would want that I would necessarily want this to be his definitive origin. But I, from the standpoint of like an Elseworlds thing or like as a thought experiment, this is a valid and legitimate Joker as we've all, always known him. This is just Todd Phillips trying to skin that particular cat in a way that makes sense to him. Um, but I do see plenty of room for other interpretations, uh, you know, of uh, of the character. And to me, it's kind of a testimony to the strength of the character that that he can withstand something like this. And one of the one of the criticisms that I've seen leveled against this movie to stay away from sort of the like socio political controversy that this film stoked, just to kind of sidestep that at least for now. One of the more, I guess, sort of cinematic criticisms that i've seen of this movie is that this isn't really even the joker at all by any stretch of the imagination this is basically travis bickle in clown makeup 
And, you know, what I tried to tell people is, you know, look, the original creation of the Joker as a comic book character, it really came from kind of a, a uh, synergy of different sources. You know, uh, there was Bob Kane being in- inspired by Conrad Veidt's role in the silent film The Man Who Laughs. Mm-hmm. And it was right around that same time, completely independent of Bob Kane, that Jerry Jerry Robinson took some kind of inspiration from a Joker playing card. And so Robinson and Kane, in turn, basically dumped all of this on Bill Finger's desk and said, well, you make it work. And he went on to flesh out the character that we eventually saw for the first time in Batman number one. And so I guess what I'm saying is the creators of the Joker, the comic book character, they took existing imagery, which they thought was powerful and evocative and all that. And then they created a character around that. And if you ask me, that's pretty close to what we're seeing in this film where Todd Phillips took existing Joker iconography and then he created a cinematic character around around those around those items. And so it's essentially the same creative process that the Joker originated from, which drove the inspiration of Joker as a film, you know, well, let me let me and ask that's you. just my way. Let me Go ask ahead. you this. Uh, do you think Todd Phillips was intrigued by the character, the fictional character of the Joker, and wanted to make a movie exploring the psyche of that character? Or do you believe that he was heavily uh, intrigued by mo- the films of Martin Scorsese and wanted to do an homage to them, you know, and use the Joker as a, as, as a tool to do that? Or is it somehow a combination? I see it as a bit of a combination of the two. I mean, I can't help thinking that you could see the the kind of Rupert Pupkin angle of this, of this character who's aspiring to be a stand-up comedian. You could see that maybe it's just a coincidence that there is the, that there is an origin story of sorts for the Joker where he's shown to be a, a, a wannabe stand-up comedian. Those two things could could just be coincidence. I think Phillips even went on the record saying that, look, I created a movie that I wanted to make, and the only way I could get this thing made was by calling it Joker and saying that this is the guy from the comics, but he's not really the guy from the comics. And I, when, when, when the creator outright says that, you know, this is, this is a cinematic character that we're basically gussying up to look like a comic book character, but this isn't really a comic book movie in the strictest sense. Instantly, at least, I want to dock points by saying, well, you're outright telling me that you're not, you're not adapting the source. You're basically just sort of doing a jazz riff on, on what, on all the things that you want to do. And then you're trying to finagle a connection that probably doesn't really exist back to the comics. It's just that I see a lot of straight lines uh, between Arthur Fleck, as we see him in this film and the Joker, the, the villain that we've been, that we've all been reading in comics for all these decades now. And so Maybe it's just a creative happenstance. It could all just be a big coincidence. But either way, to me, the thing just turned out so well that it's it's hard for me to to honestly. I I just appreciate the man's effort. To be completely honest with you, I I appreciate his ambition and wanting to do something more. And again, there's no way to say this, you know, without sounding kind of pretentious. But you know, he had a, an agenda that goes beyond. Uh, you know, uh, action figures and and Big Mac tie-ins. You know, he wanted to make a real piece of cinematic art, 
And so again, you know, people can love the movie or they can hate it. I sort of appreciate the fact simply that it exists, you know, and hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it does. And I, you know, it doesn't impact my opinion on the movie, although it could have impacted its place. Now that's mm-hmm. gone by, so it doesn't matter. But I'd be curious to know what Todd Phillips' relationship is character. Is he a guy who grew up a comic book fan and always felt any kind of connection to the Joker and, you know, explored it a little bit? Is he a guy who had no familiarity to speak of other than, you know, peripheral uh with the character and then saw it as an opportunity and then familiarized himself with it or is you know choice three is he a guy who had that initial thing didn't even bother to familiarize himself with it and just made the movie that he wanted to make (laughs) i don't know which it is but i know if it it was the third of those i would have been less enthusiastic to see it if i knew that going into it uh and it may be the case i don't know and it doesn't impact what my ultimate opinion is on the movie but it might have influenced whether or not I wanted to see it in the first place. I, I'm thinking back to uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is my favorite Star Trek. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, I, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, admitted he really had not been a Star Trek, fa- Star Trek fan before that. Uh, but mm. when he was engaged to work on this, he familiarized himself. He sat down, he watched every episode of the series, and he went through things. I think he and Harv Bennett, and I, I hope I'm not misstating history here but that's my understanding is that they went through it and they learned about it and they picked that's where they got you know decided to go with the character of khan and i don't think the effort is any in any way diminished by the fact that he hadn't been a star trek fan before retained because he immersed himself in it and he made sure that he did things the right way so i have no problem with that I, you know, it's it's not like, oh, I don't want to see a movie unless the guy was a lifelong fan. It does, that doesn't need to be the case. In fact, sometimes when people are lifelong fans, I think it in some way hurts them. I think, you know, Brian Singer in uh, uh, with your favorite Superman movie uh, was hurt by the fact that he was a lifelong fan of the original Superman movie. Yeah. I think that that version is too slavish to an effort to recreate things that he failed to recreate. Uh, but, you know, again, I don't want to go on that tangent. Um, I completely understand. But, you know, it's... It just enters into, to me, into the, uh, you know, my thought process as I'm looking at the movie. I'm curious to know now how he put this together. And I think at some point, if there is a commentary by him, I'd like to listen to hear how he put this together and thought about it and how he planned it. Um, Yeah, I'd like to speak to that a little bit if I could. Um, You know, when I was, God, I remember I was in my uh, 20s. I would say primarily this was a thing in my 20s where the idea of the collectible DVD, that was a thing, you know, that was a thing that people did. You know, you could go out and you could buy these these big fancy pants uh, special edition DVDs of, uh, God, there, there were tons of them, Titanic, Fight Club, uh, just on and on and on. And uh, very often, you know, you could find uh, director commentary, or even when you couldn't, you could still see little featurettes where, the director explained a little bit of his a little bit of his thought process when it comes to not sometimes it would get to like ridiculous details you know like what the catering truck was serving the day that they shot whatever scene but very often you know you would get these very informative commentaries from directors that would basically go to great lengths to explain the the creative thought behind this decision or that decision or, or just whatever. 
And I remember being younger and just sort of eating all that up with a spoon. Loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. But the older I get, the less I want to know about how the sausage gets made. You know, I mean, for me, what it really comes down to, you know, just the part of life that I'm in right now with these different comics that we read and, and TV shows that we watch and, and, and movies and everything. Honestly, I'm starting to think that the less I know, the better, because, you know, you and, and uh, you know, much like you, I don't want to I don't necessarily want to get lost in the weeds on this. But you did mention uh, Brian Singer's uh, Superman Returns. And there were elements of that production that I was sort of privy to just because of sort of bizarre circumstance, things that you're never going to see on a DVD or anything like that, just because they reflect so poorly on, uh, well, I'll, I'll just say it, on, on Brian Singer. And I don't even necessarily mean just some of the like criminal accusations that have been leveled against him. I mean, other things in terms of just how he manages his life. And I'm trying to be oblique for a reason because I wasn't there. I didn't actually see these things going on, and I don't want to smear the man's reputation based on what could be completely bogus information. But what I know of the movie, it does seem like this gossip that I heard that is completely unsubstantiated does have a lot of authenticity to it. I believe that you know these, these were personal challenges that Singer was going through at that time. And this is a, a case, just to kind of make my point, this is sort of a case of the less you know, maybe the happier you are. Ignorance can really be bliss sometimes. And so I do think there is a commentary because I, I pre-ordered Joker on iTunes because I before even seeing the movie, because I was that confident that I was going to love it. And I do know that there is a commentary with Phillips, at least on the iTunes release, I would assume also probably the Blu-ray. You know, if someone is interested in, in hearing him comment at great length about the movie, you know, I would say that you can probably get it there. But just for myself, again, just to say this is my preference, I don't think I want to get into that just because, again, sometimes the less you know, the happier you you might be. You know what I mean? I don't disagree with anything you've said there. <laughs> uh, my way of looking at it, well, first of all, is I, if it's a movie I know I want to see, particularly if it's you know a movie I know I'm going to go to the theater to see, I usually try to go on a media blackout on or going because I want to come in as pretty much a blank slate if I can, or at least as close to that as I can. So I, I will not even, you know, when they, when they post trailers to movies I know I'm going to go see on Facebook, I don't click on them because I don't want to see more than I... I don't want to see any of it. I want to come in there clean and, and really enjoy, you know, experiencing it for the first time, not have little bits and p given to me. Yes. Uh, so, so that's it. up until I see the movie. I want to go that way. Then once I've seen the movie, if I'm interested in it enough, I do have an interest in commentaries on it. But my commentaries are not really much of an interest in the personal life of the creators. I, I really I, I agree with you that I don't want to know uh, anything more about them. You know, it, it, you know, to use the cliche, ignorance is bliss as far as that goes. It's easier to rate a movie on its own basis if you don't have reason to personally like or dislike the creator. Um, all that said, if the commentary is really focusing on the thought process of the movie and how they made the movie, the technical aspects of it, the choices they made, I still find those to be fascinating to watch, especially that I think is either particularly good or particularly made. 
Uh, fair enough. And, and, and that kind of leads into a question that I have for you then. Um, I, you know, and it, just to show you what a big hypocrite I am, by the way, <laughs> um, the there are three commentaries that if if you love these films and you consider yourself a big fan of this trilogy, for lack of a better way of describing it, I would highly, highly, super highly recommend uh, checking out the, the commentaries for all three of the Godfather films. Now, have you listened to those commentaries? I've listened to the commentary of first, and uh, I was derailed and never got to two and three. But I would like I I have the DVD. <laughs> it's such a shock there. Uh, yeah. And, and I would I would like. Well, we to all have them, so <laughs> I would like to spend the time to sit down and look because I would. And it was interesting to hear you know Francis talk about how the, the roadblocks coming into along the way as he was trying to make the movie that he what he should make and being you know not a director of great renown at that point yes uh, so now it would be interested to interesting to hear you know what freedom he was able to get during part two and what the process was during part three uh, especially knowing in between part two and part three the problems that he ran into making apocalypse now it might be really interesting to hear you know, amount of freedom they gave him three and what amount you know where where the studio was sticking. Yeah, and in relation to that, I don't think uh, the commentary for part three is is going to let you down at all. He's got a very, I would say, interesting perspective on that. And um, anyway, so I I do highly recommend. First off, I just recommend uh, those movies, all three of them. Uh, but I certainly, for people who consider themselves to be sort of film buff types, I do consider, uh, you know, uh, those commentaries to be exemplary examples of what a commentary should aspire to be. And so for those reasons, I would actually recommend those commentaries to just about anyone who who loves those films and wants to understand the process. So. Uh, but as it goes for uh, Joker, again, this is me reasserting my hypocrisy. For some reason, it, it it's a pleasure to listen to Francis Ford Coppola sit there and really get into, you know, uh, some very in-depth detail about this, that, or the other thing with Godfather Part Two, for example. That's not a level of insight that I'm necessarily looking for with Joker. And I guess maybe to make myself look less hypocritical, I guess maybe I can kind of halfway justify that by saying that the story of the three Godfather films, it is what it is. Whereas the story of the Joker is, or Joker, now I'm doing it. Uh, now the story of, <laughs> uh, of Joker, it's intentionally left open to interpretation. It's intentionally left a little bit ambiguous. And I think that the instant you, you get some kind of comment directly from the horse's mouth, now, all of a sudden, you have a little bit less room to interpret things in the way that you think might be best. And so uh, maybe that'll make me less, look a little less hypocritical to your listeners. That's what I'm hoping anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think we have the freedom to pick and choose when we want to lend a comment on the reasons why we don't think everybody. I, I think actually it's it's more the exception. Uh, the person who seeks out comments than the uh, because I think most people just don't have time to do it and, and a lot of people if they had the time have you know don't don't have that much interest in it so yeah. you know the, leave that where it, where it is uh, let's let's talk about some specifics about this movie because I think we've been talking about it conceptually for the most part at this point yes. uh, let's let's talk about the actors we'll start with Joaquin Phoenix who obviously you know uh, this movie rises and falls with him because on the screen practically you know every scene. Um, yeah. 
I'm familiar with him. We were just talking about this yesterday. Uh, from Gladiator, from uh, Signs, mm-hmm. and off the top of my head, I, I thought there was a third one, and I can't think. But that's really it. And his acting performance, I thought, was very good in Gladiator, and I thought it left a lot to be desired in Signs. And some of that may have to mm-hmm. do with writing and direction, but there was also, you know, the performance that was on the screen. Uh, I think this one, in my opinion if I'm just going to look at those three, is by far the best acting. Right. And I would even, yeah, I, I generally I, I would agree with that. But the, I guess the, the what I would want to throw in with that is, as people, we all bring our own baggage to things, you know. And uh, so the reaction that you have is going to be the reaction that you have based upon the life experiences that that, that you've been through and, and all of that. And... I guess where the rubber meets the road for me with Joaquin Phoenix is it, this is a very overlooked element of his resume, but you know, I'm think of this, you you know, you listeners think of this as a challenge. Don't take my word for this. I want you to look this up and just see, see for yourself. I'm telling you the truth. Okay. This really happened. He was a guest star in an episode of the Superboy TV show from the eighties. And, uh, you know, he he's credited at that time under the name Leaf Phoenix, but it's the same guy, you know, and obviously he was a little kid, you know, at the time, I, I would say probably like 13, 14, 15, something like that. And well, I was a huge fan of that show uh, back in the 80s when it was coming on TV and everything. And so naturally, I caught that episode. And this is where my personal baggage kind of enters into the picture a little bit. Every time that guy was on the screen, this is not an exaggeration. Every single time he appeared anywhere in that episode of Superboy, he can give whatever acting performance he wants. He, you know, just all that. Every time I looked into his eyes, I was like, my, my God, this, these are the eyes of a psychopath. I mean, this man is nuts. This guy's crazy. He's, he's around the bend. And so I've never really been able to shake that impression of, Joaquin or Lee Phoenix as he was back in the 80s, Joaquin Phoenix today. Never been able to shake that. Every time I I see him, he, uh, he's got this just craziness about him. You know, everything that I've ever seen him in, even in some of his more lighthearted and sort of almost comedic roles like the one from Signs, I've never been able to shake the this guy is a maniac sort of vibe that I that I get every time I, I see him in just anything. And so it, in a weird kind of way, I mean, look, I don't know him. He and I have never met. We have no history with each other. But there's just something about him that has always set off my cray cray door. And so this is so Joker as a film, it kind of uniquely plays into that sort of dark spot in my imagination that every time I lay eyes on Joaquin Phoenix, I think, man, this guy's a looney tune. Well, now he's playing a Looney Tune for real, and so it may be one of the reasons that I find his performance to be so powerful in Joker is because I kind of walked into this thing thinking this guy's a nut job, you know, and I've just kind of already, you know, fair or not, right or wrong, I've already kind of got that preconception about him to begin with. He doesn't really have to do a whole lot to live up to that, at least for me. And um, on that basis, I would say that this is very much a bravura performance on the part of, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, notwithstanding the fact that I don't think he needs to do a whole lot of acting to convince me that he's a, that he's psychotic. 
this is still an amazing performance that he turns in with this movie. And I just eat it up with a spoon, you know, all of the nuances and the subtleties that go into it. It's I wouldn't change a thing with it, even if I could. It, I just I just adore it. So I, I, th- I think he does present the character as very new. And one of the things I like about it is he never hears. And this is, I guess, credit to Phoenix. And yeah. uh, he never appears to be this omnipotent non-superpowered being that he sometimes is presented in the comics and in other media yes he, he he always seems particularly vulnerable and that somehow he overcomes that uh and and i i like those choices for the character uh you know the, it, it's funny in many ways that the character is so easily identifiable you know uh you know back in the 60s cesar romero played him and people thought yeah. that's the, the that's the definitive portrayal of then we got the 1989 batman movie in which jack nicholson in my opinion was way way over the top and really just hamming it up as much as possible uh and that movie came out and they said that's the definitive portrayal of the joker nobody can ever, ever play the joker again because look how well he and and it's it's somewhat borne out by uh other other characters in that Batman franchise at that point, the actors seemed to be uh, trying to recreate Nicholson's performance, uh, despite the fact that they weren't playing the. Then right. we got the Dark, Dark Knight, and you know everybody was just blown away by the. That's it. Nobody could ever play the the Joker again. Heath Ledger uh, did it in a way that that was just you know incomparable. Then we got uh, Suicide Squad. And it was like, yeah, you know what? Heath Ledger was the, the Joker, and Jared Leto is not that character. Uh, so that was that was the one, the only time where I felt like it kind of failed. Uh, in the meantime, we also got Mark Hamill doing a voice acting part of the Joker, where everybody felt that was the definitive portrayal. Uh, and now we have this one, and in many ways, I feel like it's the same character. Uh, he, it's almost like Heath Ledger, and again, maybe this is my own mind being a, a slave to continuity, but it almost seems like Heath Ledger is the character, the way we saw him in The Dark Knight, is the character this, or the the character that this particular character matured into maybe five years later. Mm. I could see that. Um, and I certainly don't disagree with a lot of your... Uh, interpretations of you know previous jokers and previous actors who have handled this role the you know the thing is the uh you know i i guess what that tends to suggest is the the versatility that this that this this character has he's so wide open to interpretation that you know different people are going to be able different actors are going to be able to find equally valid though completely different takes from one another and uh, I, I just regard that as a, again, as a testament to to the to the purity and strength that that this character has. Um, and to kind of speak to your comment about the uh, seemingly omnipotent sort of approach to this character, that sometimes he's portrayed as being sort of unstoppable. That is something that's always bothered me as well. And one of the things that I sort of appreciated about this film is the fact that the the things that the Joker, as we see him here in, well, Joker, a lot of his, uh, I don't even know what else to call it, except his successes in in his various murders and all this stuff, the, the escapes and everything, it really does come down to luck and happenstance and all of these other sorts of things. It's not that he has this grand, unbeatable, overarching plan. 
like for example, uh, the uh, that bit of business on the subway where he mm-hmm. es- escapes from the police. It didn't have to go that way. That truly was him getting lucky. And so things happened on on the train in such a way as to allow him to escape. But he never could have planned that. And I sort of like that because, I mean, number one, it's just kind of true to life. Sometimes the bad guys just get lucky. You know, it happens sometimes. And it's unfortunate. It's not a failure on anybody's part. But nevertheless, sometimes they they get away with things they shouldn't be able to get away with just because. But it also it shows that this character has very human limitations and that works for me he's he's still very dangerous he's very lethal he's very much a threat but he's not unbeatable if the right decisions are made at the right time you can take him down and honestly there's an argument that the joker should never be shown that way batman should be the only person who's capable of taking the joker down i understand that argument i'm just saying that for the purposes of this film his limitations that actually very much works for me. Yeah, no, I, I totally. Um, I'm going to move off Joaquin Phoenix now and sure. shift over to, I guess, the second. I could go back and forth on this, but I guess the second uh, biggest would probably be De Niro, uh, who essentially seems to be combining his Rupert Pupkin character with the uh, Jerry Langford character from The King of Comedy. So it almost feels like it's both of them combined. Hmm. Uh and and the one comment I saw, I think Andy Leyland said it, I want to give credit where it's due, and I do agree, is it's amazing that he has a performance here that kind of flew under the radar, uh, and it was a pretty solid performance as far as I'm concerned, and it and I'm going to paraphrase or give my own opinion here, I think it blows away his much more lauded performance from The Irishman, which I thought was actually terrible. Really? Uh, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so... But I, I really kind of like I didn't expect much of him at all in this movie. I didn't really, I, you know, again, I didn't I don't really delve in spoilers before I see it. So I didn't know what to expect from him in it. And I was happily surprised because I kind of feel like De Niro as a an elder statesman is not nearly the actor as hungry. Yeah, no. And I I tend to agree with that. There's um, the man started off making things like Taxi Driver and somehow it became meet the parents and you know what look we all make decisions in life and maybe it's a bit unrealistic to think that every single role this guy takes on it needs to be uh, Vito Corleone in Godfather 2 or they all need to be Travis Bickle or Rupert Pupkin or so on and so on you know you maybe you've only got so many performances like that in you as an actor and he just peaked early it could be that but yeah I People who want to say that um, De Niro phoned in the entirety of the 2000s, it, I can't really tell you that you're wrong. But definitely what we see in Joker, this is a performer who is far more engaged than I've ever seen him in just about anything that he's done in the last, I should say, probably 20 years. You know, There may be a few exceptions that I'm just sort of blanking on right now, but I haven't seen him this invested in a in any role in a very long time and it was definitely a welcome surprise at least for me and i guess if i wanted to put on my fanboy goggles a little bit you could maybe see uh murray franklin as sort of a maybe not rupert pupkin in any kind of literal sense but 
a Rupert Pupkin figure that maybe this was a guy who was just as obsessed with uh, not even being a performer. He was just obsessed, I think, with fame. That was Rupert Pupkin's, I think, real issue. He, you know, if he can make a if he can make his name known, make a splash through whatever whatever means are available, that's fine. What he wants is the fame. He doesn't he's not in this to 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 be the best performer he possibly can. And I get the idea just based on some of the things that Murray says, some of the and just kind of the way that he carries himself in in the film. This is a guy that's in it for the fame as well. You know, it's not you know, people want to compare him to Johnny Carson and I, I understand that. I can see that, but to me, Johnny Carson was the in a lot of ways, he was sort of the consummate showman. He's everything that I don't think. I mean, basically, Murray Franklin is everything that I think Johnny Carson was not. Or for that matter, Jerry Langford. You know, Jerry Langford, I think, was obviously also a performer, like a performer's performer, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Murray Franklin, this is a guy that I think what he cares, he, he's the careerist. You know, he's the guy that wants to be famous for sake of being famous. And I think maybe one of the ways that I sort of deepen the the at times antagonistic relationship between Murray and Arthur is that he sees in Arthur somebody who as weird and just crazy as Arthur may be, this is still a guy that wants to be a performer. He's everything that Murray is not. And I would, my way of processing that is to say that Murray would Murray, I think, would feel threatened by somebody like Arthur, whereas Arthur doesn't necessarily feel threatened by somebody like Murray, just because I think deep down Arthur knows they're not, that Murray isn't actually com- like competition for him. You know, at least well, I, not I'm not sense. sure if Murray considers him. And I just want to delve on that point a little bit. Does Murray consider him competition? Uh, I think Murray sees him as an opportunity i think murray is an opportunist and yeah. thinks okay i'm going to get this guy on and i'm going to, going to exploit him for my own benefit and i think that's the way it goes but i think he just he thinks he's above it all uh and that you know he's gonna you know he could sit there and make fun of this guy to you know first of all make fun of him without having him on and then invite him on to make fun of him to his face yeah. and that there's no repercussions to that. And clearly yeah. there are severe repercussions to it, but uh, you know, I think he's an opportunist and I think he's trying to exploit it. That to me, it sort of touches upon some of the controversy that this film sort of generated prior to its release. And I can't help thinking that a lot of that controversy really was misplaced I see this film as much as anything, if you want to extrapolate some kind of socio-political message from this movie, in addition to being mentally ill and just all the other problems that Arthur has, he was, I don't care what anybody says, outright bullied by Murray Franklin. You know, there's a movement, there's a political movement in America that one of their, one of their sort of memes is uh, punching down. You know, and what that basically what that means is uh, somebody with a, a position of power, authority and influence uh, picking on somebody who doesn't have that same kind of platform and that same uh, power. And so Murray really was punching down at, at at Arthur, somebody who really has no way to, to defend himself. He's as far as the public knows, he's just a, a first time uh, aspiring stand up comedian who on his very first gig gets all of his failures and flaws broadcast to a national audience 
and thereby probably poisoning the well uh, for him. That's something that Johnny Carson never would have done. You know, he would never make fun of another performer, especially somebody who was just getting started. But Murray, I think, would and obviously did. And, you know, this is Murray basically punching down. He bullied Arthur. Now, I'm not saying Arthur was justified in, spoiler alert, shooting him. But it's like at the same time, like you said, you've got to expect something. You know, whenever you you go out, of your, you go so far out of your way to to just sort of pick on somebody like that. You know, maybe you weren't expecting to get shot to death on, on national TV, but it's like at the same time, did you think you'd get away with it? No consequences. And anyway, I just at least wanted to throw that out there. And again, if sure. you want to clip that part out, feel no, no, free. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I have a valid opinion. I have no problem at all with it. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if I, I don't mind sociopolitical messages in movies at all. I really don't mind it, but I just don't like it when we heavy handed, whether it's mm-hmm. an opinion I agree with or not. And I'm not going to talk about the opinion itself because I think, you know, treating people who are mentally ill is it's. It's a given. It needs to, you know, society needs to take care of that. I, I, you know, how they go about it and all of that. Well, um, I think it was a little heavy-handed in in some of the uh, messages on that when his, you know, his uh, care gets cut off. It's just thrown out there on his own and all of that stuff. But that's okay. I, it didn't didn't particularly bother me. And again, I don't think it's necessarily a bad message. I just think, you know, that society needs to do more. Uh, but it, I, I I like when it's a little more subtle. Fair enough. So uh, just to move on, I guess there's only, well, there's three potentially other characters to talk about. There's uh, Zazie Beetz is the mm-hmm. uh, theoretical love interest in the movie. Yes, indeed. She and, plays Sophie. And what I what I liked about her is, well, I mean, I thought she was fine in it. Uh, but I don't think I don't think her performance had much ability to convey to her because her part was relatively small. But what I like about it is that it does convey the we don't know how much really happening. Aspect. So I felt right. her character was somewhat pivotal, just to kind of give us that perspective. Yeah, um, in, in a in a film like this, you know, uh, a character like her, she's I think maybe the best way to summarize it is she's a sort of a window into the main character's soul. And so in that sense, I would actually, I guess, somewhat compare her to oh god, now of course I'm blanking on the woman's name. Uh, the one from Moonlighting, she was in Taxi Driver, and she was basically Civil the object. Yeah, that's the one, Simple Shepherd. And she was basically the object of Travis's desire, at least up to a certain point. And I think the narrative function that Simple Shepherd's character serves in that film, number one, is to present a picture of normalcy. And then number two, illustrate Travis's inability to relate to that, fit in with that comprehend that you know she is everything that is good clean pure and virtuous and travis cannot make it work with her because he is none of those things and so there's that not In only can he, to, can he make it work with her uh, because he isn't those things but he also has no frame of reference to understand the things and i think that is echoed in this movie very much so. sorry to interrupt Oh, no, that's exactly where I was going to go with it, to say that uh, this is uh, uh, Sophie's character. She's she's somebody that is, in theory, attainable to, to Arthur. I mean, in a certain kind of way, she is literally the girl next door. This is if Arthur has any ability to to function in normal society, in theory, he's got a shot with 
with somebody like Sophie and the fact that he can't even muster anything more than creating an imaginary relationship with her that exists only in his mind. He has an ideal of normalcy that she represents, but he deep down inside, he knows that it's all a fantasy. This, she represents something he can never have. And, um, in that sense, her character, she's kind of a sad and tragic figure because they're under other circumstances. That woman may have had a neighbor that was, capable of falling in love with her that she was capable of falling in love with and it was her bad luck that that was not her neighbor that her neighbor was in fact arthur fleck and uh, that i think is there could be a significance to the character beyond just what i've said here but at least for right now i think that is the significance of the character and it's kind of sad actually and i think that that speaks to what i was trying to mention also was that although her character is small is pivotal story and to show the inner working authors right so I, I think that you know that becomes a part of it uh the next character i just want to touch on is francis conroy plays penny Fleck's mother yeah um, and again it's a fairly small part if you're thinking screen time it's pivotal to the story uh and i really i actually have to tell you i enjoyed the aspect of her uh what ultimately i fall on the side of delusional she never had any relationship but it is still left somewhat ambiguous that you have to decide if that's the case uh you know that to the point where arthur believes thomas wayne is his father Mm -hmm. and i think it goes to show you know we we and we learn more about her own mental illness as things go on and how to some extent that that probably took away Arthur's ability to have a normal childhood and maybe grow up to be a normal person. And I, 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 tend I, to agree. I liked all of that about her. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I tend to agree with all of that. The, the thing is um, her mental illness, it's, um, it's a little bit more of a reveal or maybe even a twist perhaps that she's pictured or she's presented, I would say, as uh, pretty normal, perhaps living in denial on certain things. And I don't know if I want to get into that so much, but she is living in denial a little bit on a, on a, at least a few things. And what we eventually discover as the narrative unfolds is that everything that Arthur believes, virtually everything that she's ever told him about himself, his life, and who he is, it's a lie. And there's... It's sort of a lie built on a lie, and when we when the full truth finally does come out as it does, then it's it, it, it if anything you know you feel even more sorry for Arthur. It's like this poor guy, he was failed by literally every single element of society, whether it be parents, whether it be his employer, whether it be um, you know his local government and and, and caring for uh, the mentally ill, you know every single core pillar of society found its own special and unique way of letting Arthur down. And when Arthur realizes that even his own mother has let him down, I'll, I'll suggest to you that that was the final, that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the moment when whatever destiny lies in store for this, for this iteration of the Joker, it is now the man's curse. He cannot escape it. Whereas if things had played out differently, maybe he could have chosen a different path, perhaps a better path. And uh, I think that's very powerful. I, I 
totally. So the last character I just want to touch on before this would be uh, Brett Cullen playing Thomas Wayne. Yes. Uh, different from the way I generally picture Thomas Wayne. Uh, I, I My image of Thomas Wayne is generally formed, was put on film in the in uh, Batman Begins, mm-hmm. where he was this... He was presented as this ideal. Uh, I almost see him as, you know, like a Paul Kent type, which is just so, such an inspiration that the loss of him by Bruce is what, you know, really sends him over the deep end. And, uh, mm-hmm. Because it is such a monumental loss in his life of such a powerful and, you know, wonderful person. Um, this this is definitely a more hard-edged Thomas Wayne than I'm and we don't see a lot of him, so you don't know, you know, you can't, you can't reform a full judgment. But for the purposes of this story, I think he's well presented. I don't know if, if, if we were to continue now and show the Batman story from this universe. I don't know if his character suit my needs, but for the purposes of this particular story, it does. And again, you can present him in a different light if you were to continue in this universe through the Batman story, because uh, we're seeing things through Arthur Fleck's eyes, and maybe they're slightly Right. Well, yeah. And, you know, certainly there is, you know, I, I think that is an element of it. The I, I, I'm a little bit more ambivalent about, you know, portrayals of uh, of Thomas Wayne. If the storyteller wants to show Thomas Wayne sort of as a saintly figure, very much as he was presented in, in uh, Batman Begins. Certainly, I don't have a problem with that. I do like the idea of Thomas Wayne. Let's just say it. The guy is kind of an overbearing jerk in in this movie. And again, without going into a little bit of a political direction, I do think he is supposed to be a, a little bit of a caricature of another public figure that is from New York. And I think a lot of people are probably familiar with and long ago developed an opinion of. And, um, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on that, except to say that I see this version of thomas wayne as a commentary just or unjust on that on that public figure and i guess what i like about thomas wayne in in this film is that in theory this version of bruce wayne is still going to grow up he's still going to become batman he's still going to do the things that batman does and thomas wayne specifically the death of thomas wayne is going to be the driving force for that. And the reason I find that kind of an interesting approach for Batman as a character is that Batman, this is, as far as I know, canon for the character, he has somewhat sainted Thomas Wayne in his own in his own mind. His, his father was a man amongst men. He was the greatest, you know. And what we see in Joker is a man who is not a man amongst men. You know, he is not the greatest. And this is, I would even say, this is nothing to aspire to, you know, in terms of one's own personal and private conduct and, you know, just the way that you're supposed to carry yourself as a person. And yet Bruce Wayne, in his own way, has is going to go on to idealize this version of Thomas Wayne and not because of his behavior, in spite of his behavior, in spite of his character. And I actually kind of like that because it's another layer of hypocrisy that we can put on Batman, who's already a just kind of a murky and complicated character to begin with anyway. Now to to realize that this is a guy who's going to spend the rest of his life lying to himself about what a great man his father was when we as the audience, we know the truth. 
And I actually, I kind of appreciate that, you know? And mm. uh, so I don't think I would want to see Thomas Wayne presented this way every single time, but I do like it for the sake of variety. This is a different approach to Thomas Wayne. And again, we can't really ignore, shall we say, the um, commentary that this version of Thomas Wayne represents. I do still, I do still appreciate it from the standpoint of it being something different, you know? So. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you viewed him in a very different way than I did, and I kind of appreciate you, and I like it. <laughs> I think it's very valid. I don't mind the idea of, you know, that you, the way you presented it, that things aren't as black and white you want to believe sometimes. You know, Thomas Wayne being kind of a prick, Bruce Wayne and hit the thinking of wise. Uh, I, I kind of like that, that you know, the, the, the level that that gives to things, although I don't know if I would subscribe to it on an every, you know, because you want to like the character of Batman, so you don't want to think of him as delusional. Uh, yeah. But but it's definitely a, a you know food for thought kind of thing, and I like I always like that one. Uh, now with all that said, I think you know we, we've kind of gone a, a little longer than a good conversation. Uh, but I'm going to throw out the question. You know, where does this Jaws scale? You know, um, I think I was on some previous episode of the uh, of your show. I want to say it was the one that we did about behind the mask, and I treated you to an unrequested rant about how. For me, Jaws, the first movie, I, I understand the you know the scale that you're working with, but it's just this is one of those films I cannot be objective about. To me, Jaws is such cinematic perfection that to compare anything, I don't care what it is, Superman the movie, the first Godfather, uh, the first Star Wars, anything, nothing compares to Jaws. That's how important that film is to me. And uh, you know, you were very polite about it. You were very friendly, and I certainly appreciate that but you know i mean that is how important that movie is to me nothing nothing but nothing can ever be compared to jaws except for joker this is absolutely <laughs> jaws uh this is a this is a, an extraordinary film you know uh paul i don't know if you remember it was a few weeks ago at the time that we record this it was kind of a trendy thing to put on facebook the 2009 to 2019 challenge where you post a picture of yourself from 2009 over and against a, a newer picture of yourself from 2019 and hey look how much things have changed you know hey i was happily and, oblivious to that <laughs> oh well it, yeah no it was a thing it, it was a thing of, uh, at one point and um i guess to kind of extend that challenge a little bit what i'll say is if you had told me you know uh 2009 era magnus that in the same year that we get a sequel to unbreakable we get uh, a new Avengers movie, and we get a new Star Wars movie that my favorite movie that, come, that came out that same exact year is going to be a low-budget solo Joker film. I would have laughed in your face and said you're crazy. But congratulations, universe. You win because 2019 happened, and my favorite movie, hands down, without question, was Joker. And ordinarily i the most i'm willing to say for any movie i don't care how good it is it's jaws 2 on the best day it ever had jaws 2 joker is jaws i i say that without apology without equivocation without apo without regret so uh what what are your thoughts okay well i don't ask you for apology or regret do either i want your <laughs> honest opinions on things and i'm happy to get them um <laughs> yeah I, I you know it's funny but you know being the uh person who was pushed 
Jaws as you know the model of perfection for the purposes of my show. It is not my all-time favorite movie. It is on my top ten list of all time, but it is not oh, yeah. my all-time favorite. Uh, so you know, for me, there are other movies that that do reach the same level. Uh, this one, I'm going to just give some perspective that. You know, starting when I took a film class in high school, I have always loved the genre of film noir, mm-hmm. and this is clearly the 2019 version of film noir. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have a natural attraction to it based on that. I love the way it plays with the darkness. I love the way it plays with the psyche. Um, I thought the acting performance almost across the board were terrific. I think the direction is really to tell the story. I am hard pressed to give you any. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd, I'd really have to sit and give you know give it some thought to come up with, in our conversation we did not come up with any uh that said i'm not willing to give it the rank of perfection uh, mm-hmm. just because of the level of appeal that it's going to have uh level of rewatchability sometimes rewatchability comes into my thought process in rating things uh while there are movies that I, I admit are really, really solid uh and can be considered to be great they're almost too intense and too difficult to watch over again. Mm-hmm. Not that this hits that level. I, I, I would put possibly Logan in that category. Mm. Uh, Saving Private Ryan I put in that category. Just some movies are just, there's, there's an intensity to them that, that makes rewatching them. If I'm flipping through the channels, I'm not going to stop on them so quickly because I almost have to get myself in the right front to watch them. Yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. this may fit that category. So I'm going to rank it as a high Jaws 2. Hmm. And, and I feel like I may be selling it short by doing that because I, as I said, as I sit here, I can't really. Uh, but I'm going to rank it that way because, I, like I said, I, I can't imagine saying, hey, I'm going to put on jo- with, a, you know, <laughs> with, with a happy face. Uh, but it, it, it was truly surprising to me how much I enjoyed When this was in the movies, we started out this conversation talking about our expectation. When this came out in the theater, I thought there was really no reason this story had to be told. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw it in my mind as the cinematic equivalent of to earlier the Venom movie. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's it's fine for what it is, but, you know, I, I'm not in any, any rush to see it. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it'll be what it'll be. Um, Having seen it, I was happily surprised. The quality, uh, when it was done, I have to say, we were forced to watch a couple of sitcoms because some people weren't able to sleep that comfortably after seeing this. Uh, so, you know, I'd say take it, you know, if you have not seen it and you've listened to our review of it, I'm hoping that you're intrigued and you'll want to see it. Uh, but, you know, be, be forewarned, it is a very intense movie. You yes, should in, anticipate, uh, you know, it's, it's not the kind of movie where you're going to, multitask and, you know, read a comic book while you're watching. No. You, you should focus on the characters and the characterizations, portrayals and how it's... But all that said, it is a, a pretty enjoyable for what it is. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So I want to take a minute and thank you for coming on. Uh, it's, I always enjoy our conversations. You know, we'll, we'll try and figure out the next time when we can get together, because we do have a movie lined up to, to, to discuss, which uh, kind of got jumped over by this one. Uh, so we plan for a future appearance and session. Uh, why don't you just pimp your show quick? Oh, absolutely. Uh, for those who don't know, I host a show that's called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. And... Uh, the shtick of the show is that I basically talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. I spent the latter couple of weeks of 2019 and then the first few weeks of 2020 
doing what I call winter hibernation. I just didn't want to have to be bothered with podcasting or anything like that. But I'm thinking that by the time this episode comes out, if my show isn't back yet, it will be very soon. And so, as I say, talk about comics, talk about movies, talk about TV shows, you know, all of those wonderful things. And it's a lot of fun. And I've been doing it for quite a few years now. So I'm starting to think that at some point in the next six or seven years, I might start getting good at it. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, either way, that's what it's all about. All right, great. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll I need Absolutely. a tagline. You know, the uh, keep the aisle seat open. <laughs> <laughs> Who's there? It's the police, ma'am. Your son's been hit by a drunk driver. He's dead. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, you cannot joke about that. Yeah, that's not funny, Arthur. That's not the kind of humor we do on this show. Okay. I'm Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, it's been a rough few weeks, Murray. <laughs> Ever since I killed those three Wall Street guys. Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. There's no punchline. It's not a joke. You're serious, aren't you? You're telling us you killed those three young men on the subway? Mm-hmm. And why should we believe you? You got nothing left to lose. Nothing can hurt me anymore. <laughs> My life is nothing but a comedy. Well, let me get this straight. You think that killing those guys is funny? I do. And I'm tired of pretending it's not. Comedy is subjective, Murray. Isn't that what they say? All of you, the system that knows so much, you decide what's right or wrong the same way that you decide what's funny. Or not. Well, okay, I, I think I, I might understand that you did this to start a movement, to become a, a symbol. Come on, Murray. Do I look like the kind of clown that could start a movement? I killed those guys because they were awful. Everybody is awful these days. It's enough to make anyone crazy. Okay, so that's it. You're crazy. That's your defense for killing three young men? No. They couldn't carry a tune to save their lives. Oh, why is everybody so upset about these guys? If it was me dying on the sidewalk, you'd walk right over me. I pass you every day and you don't notice me. But these guys, what, because Thomas Wayne went cried about them on TV? You have a problem with Thomas Wayne, too. Yes, I do. Have you seen what it's like out there, Murray? Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves, they don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys, that we won't werewolf and go wild. You finished? 
I mean, there's so much self-pity, Arthur. You sound like you're making excuses for killing those young men. Not everybody, and I'll tell you this, not everyone is awful. But you're awful, Murray. Me? I'm awful? Oh, yeah? How am I awful? Playing my video. Inviting me on the show. You just wanted to make fun of me. You're just like the rest of them. You don't know the first thing about me, pal. Look what happened because of what you did, what it led to. There were riots out there. Two policemen are in critical condition. You're <laughs> laughing. You're laughing. Someone was killed today because of what you did. I know. How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross I think a mentally ill loner with a it. society that abandons him and beats him like trash. Call the police, I'm man. telling you what you get. Call the police. You get what you fucking deserve. <laughs> Good night, and always remember, that's 